Well, here in Genesis, we have, we've, we've already talked about the dawn of day one of creation. Just let me remind you what we saw in verse 1 of the Bible. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And please note there in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void. So, not original with me, but I got a little table here for you. You can see it's phase one of how God forming all of his, his universe with uh, day one of lights, day two, the sky and the water here, and on day three, making uh, the dry land and the plant. So he's, he's forming it, and then uh, phase two is he's filling it. And there's a corollary with day one to day four, day, day two to day five, day three to day six. And you can, we're going to look at days one and four today and see how God taking the form and filling, filling that. Verse two, by the way, also says that darkness was everywhere at this point in time. And so we're going to see how God takes that darkness and he's going to bring in light. And in here in verse 3, we in fact, we have the first record of God speaking in the Bible. So look, we're going to start reading here in verse 3. And God said, carrying on from verses 1 and 2, notice starting with an and here, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. In the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day, or literally day one. There's no the in Hebrew. So that's God forming it. Now let's move on to verse 14 and see how, he, how does he fill it? How does he fill his creation? Verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night. To separate the light from the darkness, God saw that it was good, there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. What's God doing here? We see, first of all, on uh, the first day, carrying on from the dawn of the first day we saw in verses 1 and 2, we see God created light on day 1. He created light on day 1. It just says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Science doesn't really understand light. They try to explain it, but it's very difficult. You've got some explanations that are helpful. Uh, but this verse here, verse 3, just says it was created by a direct order from God himself. You say, well, what is light? Well, I looked it up on the Internet, and Wikipedia says this, quote, Light is electromagnetic radiation within a certain portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. The word usually refers to visible light, which is the visible spectrum that is visible to the human eye and is responsible for the sense of sight. 
Visible light is usually defined as having wavelengths in the range of 400 to 700 nanometers between the infrared, which is the longer wavelengths, and the ultraviolet with shorter wavelengths. End quote. So that's light, as far as Wikipedia says. But why light? Why is God making light on day one? Well, many think light is the single most important source of energy and heat on earth. Very important. Think about it. What would life on earth be like without light? Would there be any life? A lot of people think without light, life on earth would be impossible. Virtually all the earth mechanisms that we depend on for the transfer of energy are derived ultimately from light. Think about some examples. For example, uh, wind, the water cycle, ocean waves would all cease if the earth was in utter darkness for very long. The earth would quickly turn cold and all life would cease. And uh, that's why many people think God's creating light here on day one. But how long are the creation days themselves? Now, this uh, I'm bringing this up now because this is highly debated even amongst some Christians. How long are these days? There are some progressive creationist Christians who claim these are long periods of time that uh, just could, could possibly even be billions of years we're talking about here. It's an important matter, so I want you to see what Jonathan Sarfardi of Creation Ministry says about the creation days. I'm quoting here. Day one sets the pattern for all the creation days. The repeated formulas for all the creation days are evening plus morning plus numeric, or a number. By comparing Scripture with Scripture, we can see that this means a 24-hour day. Day, singular or plural, with number is used 410 times outside of Genesis 1. It always refers to a normal length day. Evening plus morning without the word day is used 38 times outside of Genesis 1. It always refers to a normal length day. Evening plus morning with the word day is used 23 times outside of Genesis 1. It always refers to a normal length day. Night with days used 72 times outside of Genesis 1. It always is a normal length day. The usages show there is no reason in the text to deny that the creation days of Genesis 1 are ordinary days in length. Thus, the denial of ordinary days must be the result of imposed outside ideas upon Scripture. End quote. So, the context should help you to understand what is the days here talking about. The Hebrew word yom. Uh, part of the confusion is the Hebrew word yom uh, can change meaning depending on the context. So it can, can refer to periods of time, ages, uh, other, other possibilities as well. But when we look at the context here, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, you're always going to come to a 24-hour period of time. Just a normal day. So, God's, God's making light here on day one. How did he do this? Well, we see that God spoke the light into existence. 
You see that in verse 3? It just says, God said. He said it. What is God doing? He's just shattering this darkness and the formlessness by the mere act of speaking these words here, let there be light. By the way, it's a command. God's commanding the light to come into being, into existence. And His awesome power was demonstrated here very dramatically by that that simple command of just four words in your English Bible, just two words in the Hebrew Bible. God spoke, and the physical is coming forth, and by the way, it's coming forth from nothing. The light was called to break into this formlessness, this emptiness, and this dark world. Now, in the Hebrew language, which is the original language, the command, let there be light, is, is a juicive form. Uh, that, that by, by using that, the speaker here is imposing his will on another party. In other words, God's imposing his will on this light. He's making it, bringing it into being, and saying, exist. And the cool thing is, the light obeyed God, as if it had a choice. Number two, we also see here, God declared the light to be good. Why? Why does he do that in verse 4? God saw the light was good. It's important for us to take note of this, because creation was good because of who God is. It's because of his own character, because God is good, therefore what he makes is good. Good. All he created was good. He declared light good because it was a reflection of himself. After all, he is the standard and the definition of all that is good. Notice there's no conflict, there's no catastrophe, there's no death, and there is no sin at this point in time. It's all good. And number three, we see that God separated light from darkness. As we saw, verses 1 and 2, that there's this formlessness and this emptiness and and darkness is over the face of the deep. But God comes now and He separates the light from the darkness. What's He doing? Well, I think there's a lot of things going on here, but uh, one of the things seems to be reinforcing the fact that the normal 24-hour cycle has begun. God separates out the light from the darkness to reinforce that idea. The division here is the first of three separations. Uh, There's other separations. You'll see sky from water on day two and uh, water from the dry land on day three. So what's God doing? He's separating all this formlessness here, preparing the earth for life. So here we have the first mention of this day-night cycle. If you don't like the nighttime It's the way God made it. He declared it to be good here. By the way, all it takes to have a day-night cycle is rotation of the earth and light coming from one direction. So I I don't know exactly what form that light took. There's lots of conjecture on that. But what we can see is the earth is apparently already on its axis, and it's rotating in this 24-hour cycle, and there is a light out there in that direction, giving light to the earth. And so it's, that's what it's doing. And so we can deduce that the earth is already rotating in space at this point in time. 
But we see in verse 5 that God calls the light day. So why do we call it day? Well, because God called it that. God, God's doing several things here. For one thing, He's showing His superiority over His creation. Uh, he, he's doing that both over both the light itself and the darkness as well, because he, he calls it dark or, or night. And so by naming them day and night, he's showing who he is, that he has all power, all authority over his creation. The act of naming is an important feature in this creation account. God names things, showing his authority over his creation. Later on, we're going to see him delegate his authority to Adam, who then has the privilege of naming the animals, also showing his dominion and rule and governance over the animals. Number five, we see God declare day one here to include evening and morning. Verse five says that God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning, day one. Or as your Bible probably says, the first day. So just in case somebody might think that this was some long evolutionary process of billions of years, verse 5 just clearly says there was evening and there was morning one day. It's crystal clear. It does not describe a billion year long process. It describes one day and it describes that one day as a cycle of light and dark. God says a day is made of evening and morning. One rotation of the earth equals one day. That's the way God designed it. And by the way, God says that completes one day, or day one. You might be asking, okay, God's, God's dealing with the, the, the uh, it's without form, but how does God take that form and then fill his earth? Good question. That's verses 14 and 19. Let's see how God filled the void. Well, we see God filled the void by creating the luminaries on day four. Remember, day one matches up with day four. He's taking the formlessness and he's filling it. How did he do that? Well, again, he speaks it into existence. Verse 14 says, And God said... By the way, there's no process here. There's no passage of time. God just speaks, and it is. Whatever God created came into being instantly by His Word. And it was by His Word alone. And that's why all these theories that add billions of years to the age of the earth are actually doing nothing to advance your understanding. It doesn't, it doesn't help us with biblical understanding. Creation is not a process that God initiates. He's not the, uh, the watchmaker who winds it up and then lets it go. It's something that God actually completes. It's done. He did it by literally speaking it into existence. And Scripture over and over again shows us this. For example, Psalm 33, verse 6 says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Did you notice that? Stop there for a moment. How did he do it? By the word of the Lord. The heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. 
He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God spoke them into His existence. What else is He doing here? Interesting verses. Day 4 is one of the longer ones besides day 6. And it's interesting, we see here that God creates all these luminaries for a purpose. Well, they have many purposes, but verse 14 is saying it's, it's to be a permanent signpost. Permanent signpost for all those luminaries out there. The Hebrew word for signs, verse 14, where it says, uh, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs. That, that Hebrew word signs means they're, they are beacons. They are signals. It suggests that those heavenly bodies were set there in place by God to serve as signs for the people of the earth. You say, well, what were these signs of? Good question. Context is probably helpful to us here. Always is. Context, I think, answers the question here. If you look at it goes on to talk about the luminaries were markers to indicate times and seasons. And so in that way, they're regulating our lives. Our entire calendar is set up because of the luminaries. And they've been that way since the beginning of human history. All the ancient civilizations were doing this. Egyptians, the Babylonians, uh, into the time of the Romans. Today, we, our calendar is set around the luminaries. They're determining the length of a year. Uh, they di- we divide the year into four seasons based on what the luminaries are doing. They're marking the passage of our days and our nights all because of what the luminaries are doing. The whole schedule revolves around it. I like the way John MacArthur said it in his book, the battle for the beginning, he says, quote, the whole pulse of human life is governed and regulated by the heavenly bodies. The sun determines our days. The moon determines the months. And the stars, sun, and moon all determine our seasons and years. Our whole calendar is thus determined by the stars, and even seasonal weather patterns are determined by the sun and moon. Because the earth is tilted on its axis, The sun's rays strike different parts of the earth at different angles throughout the year. That produces the seasons that are so critical for the rejuvenation of life, the growing of crops, and the flourishing of the earth. It is all in perfect balance and works to bless humanity with a variety of climates and weather patterns. The perfection with which these all operate is one of the great proofs that they were designed by a wise and gracious creator. End quote. God's amazing. Could you have ever thought of all those things, let alone do them? I, don't, I, don't, I could have never thought all that up. Just unbelievable what he has done. But we see God, three here, what is he doing? God created the sun as one of those luminaries to dominate the day. It just dominates the day. God made, as it says, the two great lights, the greater light to rule 
the day. Interesting, God doesn't name our son. Why doesn't he name our son? He just calls it the great light. Well, some have said it was very typical of civilizations like Egypt, where Moses would have been raised, for them to worship the sun. They had a sun god. Many civilizations had sun gods. And so God doesn't name it. He just calls it the great light. And what's it doing? It's ruling. It's, it's, it's not ruling as in governance, but it just dominates the daytime. In fact, we have weathermen who tell us, what is the sun going to do for us today and tomorrow and the rest of the week? And usually our whole life revolves around, oh, is the sun going to shine? Is it going to rain? You know, what's the weather going to be like? It dominates. It's a remarkable object if you do any study on it. I rely upon those who know more than me. So look what uh, Jonathan Sephardi had to say about the sun. He says, quote, The sun is by far the most massive object in our solar system. Its diameter of 1.4 million kilometers is 109 times that of the Earth. And it has 1.3 million times the Earth's volume and 330,000 times the mass. Its surface is 5,500 degrees Celsius, while its core is 14 million degrees Celsius. The sun has a prodigious power output of 3.86 to the 10, or by 10 to the 26 watts. That's 10 with 26 zeros. And is the ultimate source of most of the Earth's energy. The Earth is 150 million kilometers away, thank God, because you would be consumed, destroyed if it wasn't. If we were closer. Anyway, so it's receiving only a small fraction of the sun's energy. That's how powerful the sun is. It's an amazing object. What's it doing for us? What is all that life, light, and energy from the sun doing for us? Why has God put it there for us? For almost every segment of the, the light spectrum, ultraviolet, so forth, all those light parts, the ones you see and don't see, is essential for sustaining life on Earth. Again, I'm not an expert in this, but I have learned that ultraviolet rays are vital for the photosynthesis process that goes on in the life of a plant. Uh, that's that photosynthesis is just the process. Plants use the energy from the light of the sun to produce sugar and carbohydrates and other nutrients. Uh, they get a lot of stuff from carbon dioxide. And in the process, they're able to release oxygen into our, our atmosphere. And that means the Earth's vegetation is kind of working like lungs for our planet. They're taking all the carbon dioxide that's emitted by uh, the living creatures, animals and humans and so forth, and they convert it back into nutrients and oxygen. And all of that's made possible because... Of the wise creator, he's creating the sun and giving us light. Wow. One reason we need to study science. Very helpful. You can learn a lot about God and his work by studying science. So he creates the sun here to dominate the day. We also see in verse 16, he created the moon 
to dominate the night. By the way, did you notice last night how bright it was outside? The moon, when there's a full moon, very, very bright. I love it when there's when there's super moon. Super moons just mean the moon's closer than at other times. You know, you know the moon doesn't do a, a circle in its orbit. Anyway, I hope you knew that. But according to the uh, NASA website, it says this about our moon. Quote, our moon makes Earth a more livable planet by moderating our home planet's wobble on its axis, leading to a relatively stable climate and creating a tidal rhythm that has guided humans for thousands of years. The moon was likely formed after a Mars-sized body collided with Earth, and the debris formed into the most prominent feature in our night sky, end quote. Well, I hope when you read websites, you recognize they're not always perfect. Because we see this God was actually there, and he's the one who made it. And we see in verse 16, he says, he made the lesser light rule the night. There's interesting statistics on the moon. The diameter of the moon is 3,475 kilometers. Of course, it's orbiting our earth that orbital distance varies uh, but average 384,400 kilometers the period it takes for the moon to go around the earth is 27.3 days surface temperature of the moon varies greatly all the way from minus 233 degrees celsius to a plus 123 degrees Celsius. You could step from the sunny sunny part into the shade and, and immediately, you, if you didn't have on a spacesuit, those poor guys could immediately go from frying to be a rock-solid piece of ice. You know, just freeze up. That's pretty cold. Minus 233. But we see the wisdom of the Creator in the moon. Its gravity is vital for life on Earth because it's, it's the main cause of the tides, for example. What are the tides doing? They're cleansing the ocean shores. They help keep the ocean currents circulating, preventing the ocean from stagnating. They benefit man by scouring out shipping channels and diluting sewage discharges. And in some places, like down in, they've thought about doing this down in Wellington in the channel there, using the tides to generate electricity. Very helpful, just to name a few things. God's made the moon as the lesser light for the nighttime. But as if, kind of like a side thought, there at the end of verse 16, isn't it interesting, it just says, and the stars. <laughs> All the stars in the universe... We're made here on day four, and God just says, and the stars. That's got to be the greatest understatement I've ever heard. Because listen to what Jonathan Sephardi says here, quote, The observable universe is so huge, 46 billion light years radius. That is estimated to contain about 10 to the 26 or 22 power of stars. In other words, that's the number 10 with 22 zeros tacked onto the end of it. This number is so vast 
that even if you used a computer that could count a trillion of these every second, it would take over 300 years to count this high in books. Unbelievable. But there is somebody who knows them all. In fact, the Bible says God knows exactly how many stars He created. In fact, the Bible says He even named them all. Isaiah 40, verse 26 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. Some have asked, why is the universe so big? I've, uh, I've even heard atheists ask that question. Why is the universe so big? It's huge. Uh, the number seems to keep growing, but it's been estimated there's about 350 billion galaxies in the universe. Our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, isn't even the biggest, and it's huge. 350 billion galaxies, and atheists love to complain about the universe being too big for God to somehow be interested in our little teeny planet we call Earth. For example, one atheist by the name of Stephen Hawking said this. He said, We are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star in the outer suburb of one of a hundred billion galaxies. So it is difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence, end quote. <laughs> well, that's what his thoughts were. But I love that DVD. I can't remember if it was Creation Ministries or Answers in Genesis who did it. doesn't matter. But we are a privileged planet. I've never seen that DVD. It's very helpful. Of all the places in this vast universe, God put Earth in the perfect place for life. And then he sent his only son to deal with our greatest problem. And of all the places that he could go when he comes back, it's going to be earth. And he's going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. And then he's going to destroy it, make a new heaven and a new earth. We will live with, all believers will live with him for the rest of the eternal state. But King David had similar thoughts to Stephen Hawking and other atheists he was similarly aware of just how tiny and small we are compared to this vast universe, but he came to a very different conclusion. Look what King David says in Psalm 8, verse 3. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That's you, my friends. All human beings have been crowned with glory and honor. Yes, the universe is big. And that big universe is there to, to declare a big, awesome, powerful God As you look at verse 16, did you notice, unlike the other luminaries, like the sun, the greater light, and the lesser light, the moon, 
There is no function given to the stars. It just says, and the stars. Some have surmised, why is this omission here? Well, I think this omission is an unspoken rejection of astrology. You say, well, what is astrology? It is the forecasting of events based on celestial phenomena. For, For example, this past week, there's all kinds of ideas of why are all these five planets like, did you look up in the night sky last week? On a clear night, you could see the five planets were all in a line. Venus, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Saturn. It was really cool to behold. And some look at that stuff and they, and they, they come up with all kinds of fanciful ideas of, ooh, well that's what it's telling me about my future or present. And so this form of divination began a long, long time ago, way, way back in the Middle East. It was very influential, and sadly continues to be influential. But astrology is never sanctioned in the Bible. And so I don't think anyone here is like this, but just be aware that no Christian should be putting their trust in a horoscope. A horoscope's using celestial bodies looking at phenomenon, judging based on when you were born, taking the zodiac and all the constellations and so forth, trying to figure out what does that mean? No Christian should be putting their trust in that. Let me show you, by the way, just how amazing our God is by looking at the variety of the stars he's made. Uh, Most of the stars are so far away other than our sun. Basically, I've had to take entire galaxies and nebula or nebulae and and uh, and super giant stars to just to give you pictures. Pray, I praise God for the Hubble telescope. It takes great photos from long, long distances. For example, this is uh, considered the darling of our galaxy, the Whirlpool galaxy. It's taken from 31 million light years from Earth. That galaxy is bigger than the Milky Way galaxy. It's massive. 31 million light years from Earth. Another one is this beautiful. I've just picked some of my favorites. <laughs> the list could go on and on. The Omega Nebula is about 6,000 light years from Earth. Wow, beautiful. Just, just sit there and just praise God for who he is, what he's made. Another one that's beautiful is the Cat's Eye Nebula. That's 3,300 light years from Earth. Does that look like a cat's eye to you? Number four is the Butterfly Nebula. It's This thing is huge. It, it stretches over two light years in distance. Beautiful. Number five is the, uh, the red supergiant star called Antares. It's 20,000 light years away. And of course, you know, we live in the Milky Way galaxy. Our Milky Way galaxy is 100 light years across. So if you take one light year, one light year represents six trillion miles. So take that six trillion miles and just times that by 100,000. It is massive. By the way, lest you become proud, that's you. Well, not now that's actually that's not even you on that picture there. That's just Earth, which I can't even see in that photo because Earth is so small. 
And somewhere on that planet is you. Our God is amazing. He's made an almost infinite variety. The last thing we see here in verse 18 is that God declared this part of His creation as He does with the rest of it. He declares it to be good. Why is He doing that? Well, there, there's, there's a number of things, I think, what, what's, what's going on here. Everything is working precisely the way that God planned it. That's one reason it's good. In other words, there's no defects here. There are no deficiencies. God doesn't need to put a warranty or guarantees or anything like that. There, there is no room whatsoever for evolution in this picture. Why is that? Because everything God made was already good. It didn't need to evolve to be good because it was already good. It was exactly the way God made it. Well, there's many implications that we could get from this text. Let me just give you five implications to think about today. Number one, the proper response here is an admission of our smallness. As you looked at that Milky Way galaxy photo and and the the little sign pointing to earth saying, you are here, does that make you feel small? It should. <laughs> it should. We, we are so small. We are so small. And we need to admit it. We need to recognize who we are. Yes, we are special, but we are also very, very small. And number two, the second thought is this. That human life is of great worth to God as his special creation. God made a very big, awesome, vast universe. And there doesn't appear to be life, human life, anywhere else. But there is on earth. We are a privileged planet. God cares about the human life on this planet. In fact, he cares about it so much about all the places in the entire universe it was earth where he sent his son so that makes it of great worth but we must not forget number three here that the creator is worthy of worship he is worthy of worship now one of the imbalances is sometimes we can become tree huggers and we worship the creation instead of the creator Let's not fall to that imbalance, that's idolatry. But notice what the Bible here says in Psalm 136, verse 1. It says, gives thanks to Yahweh. By the way, I changed all capital letters, Lord, to Yahweh, because that's what it is. So give thanks to Yahweh because He is good, for His love is everlasting. To the one who made the great lights, for His love is everlasting. The sun to rule over the day, for his love is everlasting. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his love is everlasting. My friends, this great creator is worthy of your worship. So let's worship the creator for who he is and what he has created. In this case, the luminaries. A fourth implication to consider is that our praise needs to be pointed toward a person. Particularly, the Bible points our gaze toward Jesus Christ as the creator of the universe. 
there are many scriptures that point to Christ. Uh, you, you could look at John chapter 1 as another example. But look what it just says here in Colossians 1, verse 16. It says, By Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, the visible and the invisible. All things have been created through Him and for Him. That means He's worthy of worship. Because they were made for Him. But it was... Well, how did they come into being? It came into being through Jesus Christ speaking them into existence. So point your worship and praise to Christ, who is worthy of your worship. The last implication, it comes from a cross-reference. We see that God's breaking of light in the darkness was a model of His saving work. The Bible says that God opens human beings' darkened hearts. And He brings in the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ to illuminate our dark hearts so that we are no longer blind, but we can see the truth. And it's interesting, the Apostle Paul actually quotes Genesis chapter 1, and you've probably seen your Bibles in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, you see the little marks around the quotation from Genesis 1, where it says, For God, who said... Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. My friends, as you view creation, let that be a model, if you will, of God's saving work. If you're a Christian today, God broke into your dark heart, your dead lifeless heart, your blind eyes. He gave you eyes to see that you couldn't see before. You could, you, you could see the truth and the knowledge of Jesus Christ because He illuminated you and gave you a new heart. And eyes that were no longer blind, but eyes to see. He's worthy of worship because of that as well. So let that be the model of His saving work as we look at creation here. Praise Him for who He is and what He's done. Let's praise Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for making this incredible universe, particularly lights and the luminaries we've looked at today. And may we study them, not to worship them, but to appreciate you more and what you have done. Thank you for being so awesome, so amazing. We're thankful for the model uh, in, in creation here we can see pointing toward your saving work in all believers' lives. Thank you for the light shining out of the darkness into our dead, lifeless hearts, giving us this the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We're thankful for Christ, who is the creator of all things. The one who was there in the beginning, John 1 says. The, the, the one who has made all things by him. The Bible says all things consist. May we believe what the scriptures have said. 
May we not be swayed by other people's opinions and the, the hypotheses that come our way, particularly from the scientific world. May we not be conformed to this world. Would you transform our minds to think like you think? We know your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.